With more people getting vaccinated and more places relaxing health guidelines, it's just a matter of time before airports are packed yet again. Temperatures are heating up, vaccine numbers are going up, and millions of people are ready to get on the road. After months and months and months of staying put, people are itching to travel again. According to Google Trends, searches for the words resort and hotel in the US are at five and 10 year highs, respectively. The Seychelles, if you're looking for a far-flung destination and you're vaccinated, Seychelles are allowing uh, vaccine passports as well, and it's one of the most beautiful island destinations I've ever been to. But COVID-19 isn't exactly in the rearview mirror. So how can we safely start moving around again? And how can we use technology to help us? That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Brian, I'm curious, have you been on an airplane since all this started, since the pandemic? I have not. I've mostly just been in my apartment, Michal. That's why I do this podcast, so I can talk to you. (laughs) So you can have some connection to the outside world. Yeah, I, I haven't been on an airplane either. And it's kind of mind boggling to think about, you know, if you just take a moment to realize what a massive blow COVID was to the travel industry. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, they predict that there was an 80% decrease in global tourism in 2020. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because the vast majority of business travel shut down. People have been in lockdown and that is starting to turn around. You know, if you're vaccinated, you can travel, but it's not straightforward. It's not totally simple because We're still in the middle of this pandemic, which is worsening, uh, even in the U.S. right now and a lot of places. New variants have taken over, and it's unclear how much uh, people who are vaccinated might be able to infect the unvaccinated. But you don't have to quarantine. You do have some leeway to travel. But where do you travel? You know, who do you travel with? These are all big questions. Yeah, Brian, there's still a lot of uncertainty out there, but demand is definitely rising We spoke to Catherine Powell. She's the global head of hosting for Airbnb to hear a little bit more about what they're seeing. We've seen for Memorial Day weekend an increase in remote destinations, searches for remote destinations. They've increased by 40%. Interesting, unusual destinations like Round Top Texas or Cape May, New Jersey. And in fact, one of the top searches for Memorial Day weekend is Jackson County in North Carolina. So I think that the hallmark of this summer is going to be still probably mainly domestic. For domestic, we define domestic as between 50 and 300 miles, rural and outdoors and remote. Have you done any rural travel, Brian? I have actually. To where? I have been to a little town called Weed, California, several times throughout the pandemic. And uh, I have the proof to show it. My daughter has a water bottle that says, weed makes me happy, which I don't let her take to school. <laughs> so I'm just not shocked to hear that you've been traveling to Weed Town. <laughs> it's it's beautiful out there, a small plug for weed. But yeah, I, I can see why this would be a trend, you know, people still want to travel, but they probably want to drive. And you want to be somewhere where you can be in like open space where you're not going to be crowded um, so that it's safe. 
when the president announced his desire to see the Americans outdoors celebrating 4th of July safely, we saw a an increase in searches for outdoor backyards, patios, balconies, barbecues. So we know that this is a trend and we know that that's what people are searching for. And my my role as global head of hosting is to share those insights with our hosts to make sure that they know how guests are traveling and what they're looking for. So we saw last year that guests basically, people were able to blur travel and living and working. And we saw this, they were traveling for longer periods, they were staying for longer periods, they were traveling with their family and with their pets. They were looking for Wi-Fi. So we, we will share these insights with our hosts to make sure that they can adapt to changing guests' needs. And this is, I have to say, this past year, the agility and the ability of our host to adapt has really been, it's, it's what has been made our business model so resilient. The Airbnb story over the past year is really uh, pretty remarkable because at the beginning of the pandemic, people were really making dire predictions about what was going to happen with them. And then we saw that uh, their business had bounced back so robustly that they were able to go forward with their IPO by the end of 2020. And the stock has you know, been really strong since then. But as we you know, move beyond just thinking about the particular types of travel and experiences that Catherine was talking about domestically and think about other types of interactions, foreign travel, going to concerts, conferences, whatever it is. It's going to be complicated as we have like people that are vaccinated, people that are not vaccinated, how do businesses make sure that they're being responsible. And the science and technology that have delivered us these vaccines, you know, in less than a year that have been, it's been really an amazing turnaround. But now we need to move on to this proof of vaccination, which right now is kind of decidedly low tech. I mean, I think you got your first shot of vaccine. I got my first shot of vaccine. And you go and it's really well organized. And then you get this little piece of paper that looks like somebody could have just run it off a copier machine and just kind of signed it. Yeah, this is a good reminder that I need to have mine laminated sometime soon. So at least there's at least it becomes slightly more high tech and resilient. But yeah, it, it is crazy that this is the system that we're using. Of course, there is a technological solution to this, you know, a digital version of a vaccine passport. But this topic has made a lot of controversial headlines. And of course, like a lot of other things in the United States, it's become highly political. Yeah. And it taps into a lot of the debates we were already having before the pandemic about, you know, technology and privacy. But before we dive into why this technology may be so controversial, let's talk about what it is exactly. Joel White is the executive director of the Health Innovation Alliance. That's a group focused on developing policies that use tech and data to improve healthcare. He says a better term for vaccine passport is vaccine credential. Many Americans, there's been about 200 million vaccines administered in the U.S. Uh, already, maybe about a quarter of the population fully vaccinated. And most of those people got a card, a three by five index card. That's a vaccine credential. Uh, and if that has a QR code on it, you can digitize the credential and have an app on your phone and take that wherever you go, or even just take that card wherever you go. The question is, what are they good for? What do you use them for? And the benefit is, if I'm fully vaccinated, a lot of the science that's coming out is that 
it's very hard to transmit the virus. Uh, you have low viral load, and that's a good thing, right? So uh, CDC recently said that if you're fully vaccinated, you can be in a house of other fully vaccinated people and take your mask off. Lots of people hate wearing masks. I'm one of them. And if there's something that I can do to, to kind of not wear a mask anymore because I'm at a very low risk of transmitting the virus, especially around other people who have been fully vaccinated, I, I want to do that. So, Michal, Joel likens the passport or the credential, as he prefers to call it, to like having a boarding pass on your phone. So, you know, if you're going to a concert, you can maybe walk up through the fast lane and you have the app and you show it and they scan it and you can go in, that kind of thing. That sounds great, Brian. But how does the app actually know that you got vaccinated? It's a great question. And it gets to basically what data are you using? And is that data truthful and reliable? And so, you know, what we see is there's a, at least 17 companies, probably about twice that, uh, in the market today, developing these vaccine credential systems, and they're using a you know different ways to get that data to be able to produce a product. Some are trying to get it from your electronic health record. Some are trying to get it through pharmacy management systems. Maybe you got your shot at a CVS or a Walgreens. Some are trying to get it through scheduling software, and. All of those methods, I think, have upsides and downsides to them, but they all go back to the same thing, which is, is the data reliable? Can I trust it? Is it truthful? I'm less optimistic about the passports that are going to rely on scheduling data. I could schedule an appointment, but I may never show up. And that might show up in the system as a, yes, been vaccinated. And I think the source of truth, the gold standard is the immunization registry. The ones that get data from your electronic health record, I think, are, are kind of the hybrid. And that's that would kind of pull data from either the pharmacy system or the lab or, you know, the, the registry. And I think that that's probably a, a good halfway step. But again, so worst is scheduling. Uh, middle is electronic health record. Best is immunization system. So, Brian, in Israel, where I'm from, the vaccine rollout has, you know, as we know at this point, has been pretty successful. And the vaccine passports have also rolled out pretty well. And the reason is that there is a, a centralized healthcare system and everything is electronic, all the medical records. And so it has been digitized from the get go. It's a little more complicated here in the U.S., obviously, you know, with states handling so much of the process and the the political differences that have plagued the response to the pandemic from the beginning and complicated things. Where we've seen the government weigh in, it's you know been in like Florida, Mississippi, Idaho, Texas, and it's been through executive order. And basically the governor telling private businesses that they can't use tools that uses someone's uh, information to ensure that the restaurant or other setting is safe. Right. We've got a highly infectious disease that can kill you. And we've got, you know, people saying don't use tools to detect whether someone is safer than others. And the thing that really rubs me the wrong way as a Republican and really as a, a conservative libertarian is that the government is using executive order to tell private businesses not to use tools developed by the private sector that people want to use their own personal health information for. And that 
that just doesn't seem right to me that I, as an individual, if I want to go to a restaurant and not wear a mask and, you know, not really worry about quantity limits that I have gone out and I've gotten done the right thing. I've gotten my vaccine and I've gotten my credentials and the restaurant's doing the right thing to try and keep their patrons and employees safe. And the government tells me, sorry, can't use your own data, can't keep the business 100% occupied, you know, can't try and make things a little bit safer for society. I mean, what does that say about how we're going to reopen and how quickly and how safely? For more on the controversy around vaccine passports, we asked our Fortune colleague, David Z. Morris, who's been reporting on this issue, to join us today. David, thanks for being here. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, let's just dive right into it. And I want to ask you, why are we seeing these bans pass? I think you have to talk about it on two levels. Sort of overtly, the concerns have to do with privacy, with individual freedom, and with equity. Some people have genuine religious restrictions. Some people may, for example, if somebody is coming from a country where uh, a different vaccine is being used that's not approved in the U.S., that can create some problems. But I think pretty clearly the, the thing that people are most concerned about, maybe not the politicians, but everyday people, is this idea that if it's on the phone, it's not going to be able to protect your privacy. This is not just about the vaccine passport. I think we have to talk about the last you know, 10 to 15 years of clear evidence that the government is, in fact, using digital systems to spy on its own citizens or, or was for a long time. So, David, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the role of technology companies here and, you know, what their responsibility is in laying some of the groundwork for the distrust and the privacy issues that you see. Just last week, we had Facebook lost control of 550 million user records, something like that. And, you know, that's less sensitive information than what could potentially become involved in something like a digital vaccine passport. We already have very strong laws in place like HIPAA for a reason that in general, you don't want people to know all that much about your own health. And I mean, it's something that people say, and it's not wrong, that don't trust anything digital. Don't put anything online that you don't want to be completely public. Because as far as we know right now, there's no guarantee ever that that will actually be protected. So we've really shot ourselves in the foot here by creating the conditions where nobody is going to trust these systems, even if they genuinely are secure and do protect your privacy. Yeah, I'd like to flip that around for a second, because as we've seen, almost anything that could be hacked will probably be hacked at some point. And there's a bad track record for big tech and privacy in many ways. So I think almost anybody could understand the concerns. On the other hand, if somebody hacks into my passport app and sees I've been vaccinated, I don't feel like I have anything to hide. If we can't agree on a system, how can we get back to functioning? Mm -hmm. You know, What are the better solutions than this kind of solution. But the, the conspiratorial mind, which in states like Idaho, Texas, Florida, uh, and Montana have serious uh, political weight, you know, there's a fear of creeping authority and oversight and monitoring. And of course, the, the real rebuttal to that is, of course, you're already carrying a smartphone. You're already being tracked 
by Facebook. Again, I mean, it comes back up again and again for reasons. Like, it's just not logically consistent. It doesn't make any sense. But this is the mindset. This is where a lot of the hesitancy is coming from. And the, and the argument that, like, this is completely reasonable and we're all just trying to get back to normal. Once you're in that mindset, everything just becomes more fuel. So, Michal, there are already vaccine passports in effect, and New York State just launched one. It's called the Excelsior Pass, a way to prove that you have been vaccinated. Is this the ID you're going to need to get into in the future? Restaurants, sporting events, concerts and theaters and the like? It was created uh, through a partnership between the state and IBM. Eric Passini is a global vice president with IBM, and he leads their emerging business networks. He says the platform that enables the Excelsior Pass is something that IBM has been working on for a long time to put important medical information securely onto your phone. So this is a platform that we've been working on for quite some time, before the pandemic, actually. So this is not new to IBM. And the state of New York, which is a very long client of IBM, and we have done a lot of things together over the years, reached out and said, how can we deliver a solution to the entire state at scale very quickly. How long did it take you from when you got the green light from New York State to build this app to show proof of a vaccination or test status to when it was up and running? So specifically for the state of New York, it took us about eight to nine weeks to do the first pilot. Uh, and we did a pilot for Madison Square Garden and another pilot for Barclays Center. It took us two more weeks to officially launch for the entire state. So it was overall, you know, two to three months effort. Using it at Madison Square Garden, which is where the New York Knicks play, if people don't know, and Barclays Center, which is where the Nets play. What have you learned from putting it into action and doing this testing, uh, you know, in the real life scenario? The first one is that privacy protection is extremely critical to platforms. It is super important that people understand that their information remains private as they use the solution. Your vaccination records have been collected by the state for the last 25 years. We import that information into your phone and the information now is on your phone and you can use it the way you want. We as IBM do not have access and do not store this information in any way. That's, that is that is a very important piece of the platform. The second thing that we've learned is that we need to make sure that the identity of the individual importing the credential into their phone is validated the right way, right? So we, we tweaked the platform as we were doing the pilots to make sure that when you say, I am Eric and I've, I was vaccinated two or three weeks ago at this location, that is enough to identify me and give me access to my information. And that's why you do pilots, right? That's why you do testing before you actually launch. We also, maybe the last point is, uh, uh, also f- understood very early on that the integration into the overall experience is important because you don't want people standing in line waiting to demonstrate their status. So I want to uh, walk through how this really works on a functional level because it sounds, you know, on the surface like, all right, they built some technology to access records and they put it all in one place and the app validates it. But that sounds, you know, in reality, like very, very complicated. How does 
the technology work? What sets of records is it accessing? How does it bring them together? And what's the tech behind it? So when we launched the platform with New York, we, in agreement with the state, we said we would collect two different types of information, test results and vaccination records. Uh, in the state, you have two different registries, what we call vaccination registries. We have one at the state level and one specific for New York City. Just to interject there, I, I find that really interesting because I've been vaccinated, of course, many times over the years for the flu vaccine, you know, for instance. And, you know, I, I couldn't produce some record of which years I got vaccinated and which years I didn't. It's just kind of funny that you're reassuring me that the state has been tracking it and that it's accessible. I know a lot of people actually didn't know that the vaccination records were captured at the state level. And it's true in every state in the U.S. Now, another thing that's going on is, you know, people have been so desperate to get vaccinated that they might be signing up for more than one vaccine appointment. Does the system only process it through into the records and then into the app once people have actually successfully gotten the vaccine? That's a good question. It's at the end. So you get your credentials on your phone only if the state registry database is telling you that you've been vaccinated, one dose or two dose, depending on the vaccine. Then you have to wait 14 days after that last vaccination event to be able to import the credential. I'd like to know a little bit more about the technology that's doing all of this, accessing the databases and knitting this together. I understand that it uses blockchain technology, but maybe you could walk us through why it's on a blockchain and why that's better for this solution, you know, than some, you know, normal kind of database system. So the, the reason we use blockchain is because we actually do not record the, the information. We actually register a, a fingerprint of that information. And it's not the information itself. So you cannot recreate the, the original data from the fingerprint that you see on the blockchain. You can't. The, the, the fingerprint of that data is very small and it's a series of letters and numbers and you can look at it and it doesn't mean anything to you. And the consequence of that is that we can actually do the verification of a credential without exposing and without collecting private medical information, right? So you can actually verify that I've been vaccinated without seeing where, when, and which vaccine did I got, but you can actually do the verification anyhow. Uh, so you control the way you want to use this information. It is not accessible to IBM and you decide if you want to share information or not with a third party, it's your decision. So you've done this for New York, you're out there testing it. New York is first in the country. As we think about this as a developing trend, you know, other states, getting into this, other countries getting into this. How should we think about, you know, interoperability of these technologies? You know, if you have four different companies building their versions of these apps and these systems, uh, is that going to lead to chaos or is there going to be some kind of universal connectivity between the systems? We have embedded into the platform many different standards that are already in place in the industry so that if someone is presenting me a credential or a, a pass from a different platform that is using the same standard, we can recognize that, that pass and vice versa. We actually engage with five different organizations globally to bring additional standards to those platforms. And, and those standards are becoming more and more mature. And when they get approved, we'll include that into the platform as well. And then you have organizations that are competing with us 
but I'm going to tell you, they compete with us, but I'm always on the phone with them every week because we are building bridges between our platforms so that we can recognize each other when we travel across the globe. Because the last thing you want is to have 17 different applications on your phone to represent the same test results or the same vaccination data because you need to expose that to 17 different companies, right? We want to avoid that at all costs. That is definitely something I would like to avoid. So, Brian, of course, I understand some of the concerns here, the privacy issues, the fact that people have very, very strong opinions when it comes to this. But, you know, it's always a trade-off. We've been giving a lot of our data, our personal information to all sorts of entities, whether it's government or private sector, for a long time. And I think it's, you know, a lot of times it's if, if you feel as a consumer that what you're getting out of it is worth it to you, then it's a it's a worthwhile thing, right? And in this case, we've never been in this situation before where there's a pandemic and where this could be a key to resuming life as we had it before. I think to a lot of us, it's worth it. I mean, on the one hand, you know, people like Eric have been working on this challenge of encoding our data and keeping it safe and and actually creating a way for us to access our health data for many, many years. And like so many things with the pandemic, this has accelerated a process maybe of of creating technology that'll be more useful. But at the same time, it arrives and, you know, people don't know how to process it. They haven't had time. I mean, you know, most people don't think about the fact that Google theoretically knows everything about your health conditions. You're Googling every time you, you know, have a cough, you know, you're going to WebMD or, you know, that information is out there one way or the other. Having a system that securely presents it for you and makes it useful to you theoretically should be really useful. Well, my real reason for wanting vaccine passports to take off is so that you can bring your family out here to California from Brooklyn and come with us to go visit lovely weed. What do you think? Oh, you're going to take us to Weed Town? <laughs> oh, yeah. I've always wanted to go. <laughs> it's at a pretty high elevation. Just kidding. <laughs> All right. That is it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. <laughs>